Hi, this is Andrea Borcha. And I'm Charles Wilchin. This is Farsta. The Internet of Things podcast. So Dr. Russell, if you want to start us off. I'm a cognitive neuroscientist, and I've been working in the realm of human performance and human systems optimization since about 2003, first looking at it in terms of how it affects strategic defense initiatives and strategic defense concerns. And then now we're we're doing some applied science here at Lockheed Martin. That's great. And Bill? Hi, my name is uh, Bill Casebeer. I'm a cognitive scientist uh, and a retired Air Force intelligence officer. I head up a human systems and autonomy research area for Lockheed Martin's advanced technology laboratories. We do generation after next technology development for Uh, the Lockheed Martin business areas and for our Department of Defense customers. And I apply my background in understanding the intersection of technology and human behavior to uh, work with my team to to build systems that help human beings improve uh, their performance across multiple tasks. Generation after next. I love that. (laughs) So you're essentially turning fighter jets into IoT devices. (laughs) Is that true? I think that's a nice way to characterize it. We're, we're understanding how you uh, sensorize both the airplane and the pilot so that you improve the performance of the pilot and the airplane taken as a team. So if you think about how we uh, treat airplanes presently, you know, we build an F-22 or an F-35 and we put thousands of sensors on them to tell us something about the state of the airplane. And we're interested not only in how you interpret that data, but also in how you sensorize the human being, the pilot involved in uh, helping the airplane do what it does so that we can help the pilot and the airplane work together as a true team uh, rather than as uh, uh, isolated or separated parts of the system. Lockheed has a hundred plus year history of, of aviation. How did you guys evolve into starting to incorporate sensors? Was it kind of a one ditch, like, yes, we need to get on this or kind of slowly integrating things as technology became available? In some ways, it's a natural extension of what Lockheed Martin already does because human is already at the center of a lot of the systems we build. It's always part of what our thinking as a system is designed. But at the same time, we're hitting this era of punctuated equilibrium, which is an evolutionary concept that says if uh, you have a confluence of factors, in this case, a series of technologies, they're all maturing at the same time. They're allowing us to be even more forward thinking and even more um, ambitious than we might have been, you know, five or 10 years ago in this area. So it's, it's a combination. It's both evolutionary, but then uh, it accelerated evolution. Presumably in the early days, the humans weren't censorized, but you did need to know information about the state of the pilot. Was that all just done vocally? How did we get here? I'm not an expert in the kind of the history of uh, technology development uh, for sensors on the airplane side of the house. I can say that the the way we think about uh, processing behavioral data actually has ancient evolutionary roots. So if you think about it, human beings have always been good about sensing each other's states and making inferences about those states. So since we're social creatures, uh, kind of evolved to Uh, work together and cooperate in groups to get things done, we are exquisitely tuned to each other's bodily state. So uh, if we were sitting together in an interview room, we would be paying attention to where we're putting our eyes, what we're doing with our hands, the facial expressions that we make, the tenor of our voices, whether or not we're sweating, whether or not our postures and uh, gestures are synchronized. 
all of these things would be input into uh, this big three pound universe that we have, this big brain that we have that would help us make sense of those signals so that we could do things like tell whether or not we're going to be good teammates with each other or help synchronize our, our activities. So really the idea of monitoring signals and then using them to help improve the performance of a team is an ancient one. It's one that's, that's biologically basic for human beings. So the technology advances that Dr. Russell mentioned, that Bart mentioned that we're leveraging are built off this older framework uh, that we use to help us make sense of each other's actions so that we can coordinate our actions and be an, an effective team. And we're just extending that paradigm to our tools and technologies as well as to each other. Even if you think about the way scientists have operated for years, we've always been interested in the context. This is what IoT brings to the table in such a powerful way for us these days. In a traditional chemistry lab, you'd always write down what the, the pressure is on a given day, the temperature of the room, the humidity. In case there you get different results, you have a sense of there are contextual factors that might have had an effect. In this case, IoT gives us the tools to provide more of that contextual information in a more persistent way, in a more objective way. It, it adds a whole other layer of robustness to our understanding of the whole human system, whole human uh, machine system ecosystem. In that sense, do you see that the uh, technology is then preparing to or already does qualify the user? Because it almost seems like you're creating like a sphere. The person and the technology are now the team, just like you were talking about the human to human connection. Now it's like technology can actually be part of that community. We very much think about the human and the machine as teammates. That's central to our ethos and, and as, we, as we develop our technology. So I'd say that it's as much about the machine understanding the human's needs, you know, this highly trained, very skilled human's needs from day to day. And likewise, the human understanding how well the machine operates in various contexts. So uh, it is very much a human-machine team at the, at the center of what we do. I would just add that uh, even though we think of Lockheed Martin as being a technology-centric company, it's useful to keep in mind that Lockheed produces technology in service of people and ultimately in service, especially of our Department of Defense customers, our soldiers, sailors, airmen, and Marines. So we're, we're really a company about people, about enabling people to expand their capability to get their work done. And so when we think about the Internet of Things, we always also should think about the Internet of People. That's ultimately what we're enabling. We're enabling our warfighters uh, to, to do their job better so that the world's a more peaceful place ultimately. Do you have any thoughts on not only how it helps them do their job better, but more safely? Yeah, definitely. Uh, the whole purpose of autonomy, which is the area of human-machine partnership that we're working in, that means if you have a, an operator, everybody has a bad day. If the machine understands that the operator's not at the top of his or her game on a given day, they can provide a little bit more help in terms of offloading other tasks so the operator can focus on the things that, are, that we really need the human to do in a forward operating system. And this might help prevent bad decision-making, for instance. Um, providing decision aids at the same time can help that as well. Providing more information and more transparency of information to the human, giving them, again, more contextual background and to the situation on the ground, that person's going to make a better decision overall, less likely to have various accidents or, or incidents that we hear about in the news that are so tragic. On the topic of autonomy, most of our framework, where we are, is cars, of course. Are there any uh, research intersections between 
uh, autonomy as it applies to cars and as it applies to fighter jets, for example? Yeah, there, there certainly are. So uh, in much the same way that uh, a car has to be able to uh, sense its environment, um, process the meaning of that sense data, and then take the appropriate action uh, so as to be truly autonomous, um, so do our uh, airplanes and other tools that our soldiers, sailors, airmen, and Marines use. So a lot of the same technologies that you could use for uh, navigation or decision aiding uh, in an autonomous vehicle or a car uh, could be used in the Department of Defense environment as well. Uh, one of the major differences, though, will be the uh, speed and the, with which those decisions have to take place and the more extreme environments in which uh, Department of Defense platforms operate. So, uh, you know, a tank or an airplane is going to have to be certified to operate in a much broader range of environments, what is in some senses a relatively homogenous environment that uh, a car operates on as it uh, drives along on a road. So it's the exact same kind of scheme, this idea of sensing, assessing, and augmenting uh, behavior that enables a car to be autonomous. And that same framework will enable the uh, other platforms like tanks and airplanes that um, our soldiers use uh, to be autonomous as well. Can you guys give us the range of, of um, types of transportation that you're, you personally work on? Is it, is it really across the board like that? Well, our, our focus inside of our lab here with the Human Systems and Autonomy Research Area has been more upon decision support systems initially. And what I mean by that is if you look at all of the tasks that soldiers have to do, a lot of them uh, involve steering and operating or partnering with the kinds of vehicles we were just discussing. Uh, but others involve processing the data that's generated by those uh, vehicles. So, for instance, if we have an autonomous airplane that's gathering uh, information about a battlefield uh, downrange, then that information has to be processed and made sense of so that a commander could decide what to do, can make important tactical and strategic decisions. So a lot of the systems that we're talking about focus on enabling analysts to better process that information, to process it more quickly and efficiently so that we can have what would be called decision quality information available to our, our commanders uh, in the field. Some of our systems have focused on assessing uh, workload in the intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance environment. Others have focused on giving imagery analysts. So these are intelligence analysts who look at photographs and full motion video. The tools that they need to be able to rapidly identify, say, an adversary tank or airplane in a photograph or in a moving image and then get that information to the person it needs to get to so they can uh, uh, act on it uh, quickly. Now, having said that, you mentioned earlier the idea of uh, preventing accidents. And uh, some of our foundational work in thinking about how you can use the conjunction of the Internet of Things and the Internet of People to prevent accidents looked at neurobiological signals linked to the recognition of error. Let me talk about that for just a moment. When you fly an airplane, there is a, a process you can get into where your control inputs become out of phase with the ones that are required to actually fly the airplane appropriately. So in other words, you might uh, ought to be pushing the stick forward uh, so that you dive, but instead, you know, pull the stick back and climb. And so when those control inputs become out of phase with what they should be so as to, to pilot the airplane appropriately, 
that can lead to something called pilot-induced oscillation. And so pilot-induced oscillation, or PIO, is uh, a cause of accidents, uh, you know, where, where people uh, can, can die because of this tendency we have to have our control inputs become out of phase with where they should be. So an expert pilot can recognize when they are in a situation, say when they're about to land or when they're about to refuel their airplane, they can recognize when they're entering an environment where they might be likely to induce an oscillation. So these are very kind of time-sensitive environments where it's possible for those control inputs to become out of phase. And it turns out that inside your brain, we have these exquisitely evolved networks that are good at telling us when we're about to um, when we're about to make a mistake, when we're about to step in it, if you will. Those error recognition mechanisms can be a target for us. They can be something that we can try to monitor with our Internet of Things. So, in in one project, we used what's called an electroencephalogram, which is a a set of uh, electrodes that just sit on top of your head, and they can sense patterns of electrical activity over your scalp, and those turn out to be correlated with the operation of some of those neurobiological mechanisms responsible for detecting error. It's possible to detect those mechanisms in operation even before you become consciously aware that you're about to make a mistake. And so if you can monitor those and provide that feedback to the pilot, you might be able to provide them with an Internet of Things enabled warning light that tells the pilot, be careful, you're entering a regime where your own brain is telling you, is giving you advance warning that there's a possibility your control inputs are going to become out of phase with where they should be. And so that warning device to help prevent uh, pilot-induced oscillation, we think, could be used to help train pilots so that they are better able to monitor their own Internet of Things, if you will, their own bodily states using their own brain so that they are less likely to cause uh, pilot-induced oscillation and the accidents affiliated with that. As you're assessing all of this information and processing it and, and doing all the data analytics, do you still, uh, is the goal still to inform the pilot and have uh, people make all the decisions? Or are you moving towards um, a world where the technology can make certain decisions based on that data um, to kind of help either uh, get to the goal or to prevent uh, an accident? So it's a really good question. And the answer is that when we have more sophisticated systems, they are capable of doing more of the tasks that we traditionally rely on humans to do, such as routing around a threat. If you're in flight and uh, one of your sensors detects a threat, the operator or the pilot might be busy communicating information to a commander or looking at a, a potential threat in another area that he has to support his ground troops on and not paying attention to a threat that might be threatening the integrity of his own aircraft, for instance. In that case, the autonomy can reroute his own aircraft to keep him safe while he's still maintaining uh, overwatch over the ground forces, for instance. So we are moving towards looking at what functions the autonomy can take over while always preserving the ones that the humans have to focus on. So it, it is a more sophisticated relationship where the human and the machine are truly partners in the air and, not, and the machine is not just a tool. This is what the Internet of Things is really enabling for the warfighter and why it's so powerful. As the technology is still developing and it gets more and more sophisticated, do you guys have a method in place to decide what 
must always be a human decision and what must be technology? Because I'm sure at some point it can get cloudy. Yeah, that's a, a great question. And our team is concerned to build technologies that amplify on the strengths of human beings and address their weaknesses and do the same for the types of reasoning that our autonomous machines engage in. So we want to allow machines to do well what they do, allow humans to do well what they do well, and then also address the, uh, the pitfalls or shortcomings that both of those parts of the system, if you will, bring to bear. So for example, an autonomous algorithm uh, that makes judgments about whether or not there is a, a threat uh, uh, near your airplane uh, might be very good at operating persistently. That is, it might be able to operate 24-7 uh, every minute of every day without tiring or without becoming fatigued or without becoming bored. So that's a fantastic capability to have, that ability to be uh, persistent in the monitoring of the environment is a strength of our machine teammates. Now, on the other hand, uh, some of those algorithms might not be very good at telling the difference between uh, certain kinds of threats. So maybe they confuse one type of missile system for another. Um, but the human being might be very good at distinguishing between those two types of missile systems so they can know that one requires immediate action and one doesn't. And so the human being, who might otherwise become bored uh, or fatigued during a long mission, can be brought in whenever that autonomy detects that type of target so that the human being could exercise their excellent judgment or exercise those creative capacities that human beings are especially good at. So, for example, in the field of artificial intelligence, there's a well-known problem called the frame problem. And that's the idea that whenever you're, you're going about understanding what's important for helping you resolve a particular problem, it, it's, it's difficult to be able to either program or have computers learn what variables are important in any particular situation. Whereas a human being is very good at laying their 10 to the 14th neurons of their brain with 10 to the 15th power connections between them on that environment and saying, ah, here are the two or three most important things we need to monitor, and here's the important decision that needs to be made. So we really see uh, ourselves as building technologies that allow humans and their autonomous machines to be synergistic teammates with each other, leveraging the strengths of both and ameliorating or addressing the weaknesses of both so that uh, overall our human needs are better met by the system. By the way, I'm loving this. We've talked about the IoT a lot, but not in the context of, of like life or death kind of necessarily hardware in health, yes, but, but what you guys are doing is a little bit different. One thing that strikes me about what you're doing is everything uh, is in a very high-stress environment. Everything is happening so fast. And presumably, you have to deal with the problem of humans having, I guess, limited bandwidth. You know, you have, obviously, visual. You have audible methods of communication. Are you experimenting with any other, like, installing any other I.O. ports on humans? How do you, how do you bypass the limited bandwidth of humans, other than, of course— turning all that data into just very selective meaning is, are there any other opportunities to increase the bandwidth between man and machine? That, that's an excellent question. And that's where, uh, that's where we go beyond the sensors and, and rely on our capability as, as neuroscientists and cognitive science to understand if you present information in new and different ways, you can actually provide more meaning to the human not necessarily just more information, but more meaningful information to the human. 
to effectively increase their bandwidth without essentially, without having to install a port in the human, as you say. In particular, we look at a number of different principles that come from the human factors world, such as using multimodal queuing that incorporate, that spreads information sharing across the visual, auditory, all the different senses that are available, including haptic vests to try to reinforce alerts that uh, a person might become uh, very focused and be suffering from tunnel vision as a result of having something that's important that they're focused on. Uh, That's in some ways a very good strategy that we as humans have developed over over the years. But at the same time, if we need to now pull their attention to another very important threat, for instance, having a reinforced alert like a haptic or a, a haptic alert via a vest with a tractor on it can help uh, it emphasize alerts when and how we need to. So a lot of it is uh, managing attention and focusing it, helping the focusing on where the human needs to focus. And then it's also in the decision aiding. So when you provide the human with a choice, a decision, you know, to reroute or not to reroute, you give them not only a sense of what the choice is, but also what are the second and third order consequences of that choice? Are they going to run out of gas as a result of this reroute? Or are they going to have plenty of gas? Are they going to be able to support a specific ground unit if they take that alternative path? By understanding the follow-on consequences, they're better able to make decisions, and it doesn't require us to expand the aperture, if you will, or, or modify the human, as it were. We're able to uh, understand the cognitive systems and use them to their best ability. I love the idea of the haptic uh, vest. Is is can you give us an idea of how that works? For example, when if you're trying to direct them to direct their attention in a certain place on the instruments on the plane, do you send a haptic signal kind of in that direction on their body? How does that work? Well, you know, it, there's a number of different ways that the haptic vest has have been um, thought about and used. Primarily, it's been and as an alerting mechanism. So, either uh, from a directional standpoint, if there is a threat approaching, you know, from your left side, then a tractor on the left side of the vest could go off. Um, some groups have even looked at using the vest as a means to uh, fly blind. If you have, a, if you're in a situation where there's weather or you can't see in the helicopter, for instance, and you can't see the surroundings, the vest can give you indicators of where there might be obstacles sensed by the helicopter that can't be seen visually. That way, the person can feel where those obstacles are without relying on trying to interpret uh, gobbledygook from a sensor. It's translated into a way they can intuitively understand it. That's incredible. As you guys keep developing, um, are there particular challenges that come up that you think really kind of complicate things or, or some, some pretty big hurdles you've had to overcome? That you can talk about? <laughs> <laughs> well, there are challenges across all three kind of puzzle pieces of the paradigm we use to think about improving the performance of the human machine team. So that's the, the sense, assess, augment uh, approach that we use to think about performance improvement. So on the one hand, there are challenges affiliated with developing the right kinds of sensors. So um, those are sensors that might be keyed to the, the usual suspects, if you will. We mentioned brain activity earlier using electroencephalograms. We can also monitor the kinds of things you get off fitness devices affiliated with the Internet of Things, so heart rate or heart rate variability, accelerometer and gyrometer movements, 
galvanic skin response, so a measure of how much the conductivity of your skin changes as you sweat. Uh, All of those things are potential targets for monitoring by our sensors. But of course, our sensors have to be ruggedized enough to do that kind of reliable collection in the types of environments where we expect our, our soldiers, sailors, airmen, and Marines to operate. So that's a challenge, ruggedization. And being able to get those sensors to persistently collect reliable data is, is extremely important. So um, we have focused on methods you can use to filter that data, to know when it can be relied upon and when it can actually be used as part of the uh, performance improvement process. So that second puzzle piece then is assessment. What, how do I interpret that data? There, one of our challenges has been that, in general, our, our interpretation methods uh, have been spread out over the course of uh, months to even years. So that is, we, we might gather data in a scientific concept, context using some of these sensors, and then we'll uh, use some traditional statistical methods to draw some correlations between the data and, and performance. But that's a very slow and time-consuming process, and that's not fast enough if you want to be able to build something like that error detection and recognition mechanism uh, mechanism for pilots that I mentioned earlier. So we've been focused there on developing real-time interpretation technology using advanced machine learning techniques, things like the uh, convolutional neural net and deep network uh, revolution, where we use brain-like methods of computation to help us rapidly make inferences about the meaning of that data. And then finally, you need to do something different as a result of that analysis. So augmentation remains a challenge. We can do things like we do with traditional human factors engineering, where you reorder the tasks or have one person do a, a, a task rather than another because the other person is cognitively overloaded. But we're also interested in in pushing the bounds of that technology to understand even more interesting and innovative augmentations, like knowing exactly where in a process to bring to bear an autonomous machine teammate so that we see the most performance improvement. So we're focused on, on bringing quantitative tools to help us really put some true science behind that augmentation. So those are three sets of challenges and some of our responses that are affiliated with the sense assess augment paradigm. It, it sounds like then you rely heavily on developing some really in, intelligent artificial intelligence at that point. I mean, it needs to, I mean, it needs to not only process the data. I'm guessing at some point you just build in some cues where if A, B, and C, then automatically do D so you can speed things along. But um, as we may be oversimplifying, as it, as the artificial intelligence uh, engine grows, do you find it um, finding its own? Uh, stumbling within itself or, or, or finding any challenges? This is a great question. We've found some, uh, AI is such a powerful tool and machine learning tools we use are, are powerful in that they will find patterns in the data that you give it almost without fail. Um, whether or not those patterns transfer and, and are predictive for all humans is another question. So a number of the challenges that we've looked at have to do with uh, do these models that we develop to, pre- to predict when somebody is overloaded, for instance, um, do they transfer among individuals? And the answer is that we have to really develop individualized models uh, in order to do this correctly. That in, but even more, the individual learns every time he or she interacts with the system. 
So our models have to not only be individualized, but they also have to be adaptive and they have to learn with the human. So it's been eye-opening for us to see that, but also incredibly exciting. And we've had as much fun developing the adaptive methods as we have in incorporating the sensors into our platforms and into our uh, closed loop system. So to make sure that I understand this correctly, you, you're effectively uh, creating a, a, a corpus of sensor data that indicates when uh, a person you know, needs help or, or something for some task. You're developing this, this corpus of data, but you need to continually update it because as the person learns, their response changes in that same situation? Correct. Well, if you think about the way the brain works, is that every time you learn something, you establish different connections, and some connections are, are weeded away. As a result, over time, those changes become cumulative, and the signals that we pull from the brain are going to, as a result, be slightly different. Because of that, the human is, and this is what makes humans so wonderfully adaptive and what a wonderful uh, complement to a very persistent, consistent machine. Uh, But it's also why we have to maintain algorithms that adapt as the person learns and learns with the human. It makes for a more robust algorithm. It makes for a more robust performance in the end. But that's exactly right. We need to have algorithms that change and adapt with the human because the human is constantly changing and adapting. We may need to come visit to see this, but <laughs> I'm wondering how do you... <laughs> that would be great. Oh my gosh. Uh, I can't tell you how amazing that would be. When you're, when you're creating this data, how, how close to an actual real life scenario do you have to get for it to be useful? Does it need to be... Uh, do you need to create prototypes that are, are being flown? Is a simulation enough? Yeah, that's a great question, Charles. So uh, in order to build the types of uh, models that are adaptive for both the vagaries of the individual and the vagaries of the task at hand, you need to have a good, what is called a high verisimilitude environment. That is, your, your environment needs to realistically replicate the kinds of tasks that you'll be accomplishing in real life that you're building the prototype for. And so inside of our laboratory, we use a variety of of ecologically valid environments, if you will, to to run those tests. So Lockheed Martin has a simulator system called Prepared3D that is a uh, multi-pilot system where pilots at various locations can log into the environment and fly a very realistic uh, simulation using some of the exact same flight models of something like the F-22 fighter aircraft. So we replicate the uh, cockpit and instrumentation on uh, the television screen, and then they can engage in joint maneuvers with other pilots flying uh, F-22s in that same environment. And then we can add in the types of autonomous teammates that we have in real life. So uh, unmanned aerial vehicles uh, like the Global Hawk can be assigned as teammates there, and we can replicate the exact same kinds of scenarios that you see in real life as you fly a mission uh, elsewhere in the world. So high verisimilitude, high ecological validity environments are very important for helping you build effective prototypes. And we are interested in understanding uh, where our simulation environments result in good transferability of results and where they don't, and then in correcting them uh, when, when, when they don't. And if we do that well, that will help us build the type of adaptive model that can account 
not just for learning effects inside of your brain, but also for the day in and day out changes that we all experience in our brains and bodies, owing to things like what we had for breakfast in the morning or how much sleep we got the night before. So do you have to then essentially create a a library of AI profiles that match individuals? It's almost, it almost sounds like you're creating a technology DNA library because every individual pilot will have their own individual technology signature as a, as an autonomous teammate. Is that right? Yeah, that's, that's a very insightful comment. So uh, you can think of those things as being templates. We have a template uh, that uh, it serves as a baseline for a particular individual. And then our lab is working on the processes and the technologies that re- let you rapidly adapt that template so that it fits the individual circumstance and the individual pilot. And it's, it's that having that right library of templates and the right process for rapid adaptation that will ultimately let you build an effective performance improvement system using that census S augment framework. You must have an amazing amount of data processing. I'm assuming that that uh, data comes in a cartridge form, like a Nintendo cartridge, and that the pilot simply <laughs> inserts the cartridge. They blow on the edge and then they insert the cartridge in the plane. That's probably how it works, right? Well, you have it's- to blow on the edge for it <laughs> right. to work. That's known. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you want to be uh, plug and chug. <laughs> Um, So, yeah, it it seems intimidating when you think about individualized algorithms, but if you think about how much money we spend already on training pilots throughout their life cycle, and it it really is not that much more to think about to use these tools and a little extra processing time to develop these algorithms. Uh, So it's, it's an incredible addition to their capability with not a whole lot of extra investment beyond what they're already, what we're already investing in our pilots. That's amazing. It it sounds, it, it sounds so futuristic, but yet so now right now, I mean, it's like as in, and if in any field that it would be really good to really start making more sophisticated use of IOT, this is definitely it. Is there any sort of um, short-term accomplishment or, or, uh, exciting advancement that you guys made recently that you can share? And is short-term even really in your vocabulary? Because <laughs> <laughs> you guys are, I, I assume that the product uh, plan for Lockheed Martin is probably set for 10 years out. Is that true? Oh, at least. Well, we, we look to contribute both in the short and long-term to building the kinds of technologies that Lockheed Martin needs to meet the, the requirements of the warfighter's mission. So in the short term, we, we have examples of uh, performance improvement systems uh, in action. So let me give you two examples of those. First, we've built using a relatively simple commercial off-the-shelf electroencephalogram sensor called the Muse, a set of filters that can assess the workload of a pilot as they fly in a simulated flight environment. So you can slip this Muse headband on, onto your head and then use these uh, filters to make an initial guess about how much cognitive workload the pilot is expending as they fly a, an, an obstacle course, if you will, in the air. And so what's exciting about that is you can then put that workload assessment into a closed-loop relationship with the difficulty of the sortie, of the mission that the pilot is flying. So if you've got an expert pilot in your class, you can put your waypoints on that obstacle course closer together and much more different in altitude so that they have to yank and bank more than the average pilot in order to uh, successfully fly the course. 
On the other hand, if you have a novice pilot, you might want to space those waypoints further apart and put them closer together in altitude so that severe maneuvers aren't required in order to successfully fly the course. And if you do that, you've actually provided a tailored stimulus, a tailored training and education stimulus for both of the pilots. Rather than using a 19th century model of education where we treat every student as though we are the same, we could use this sense-assess-augment framework to provide a individualized method of instruction that will get you into the sweet spot in terms of workload and engagement so that you learn the most possible every time you're flying a mission in the air. So that is a, a functioning demonstration where we're able to show that we can use that sensor to make some estimates of workload and then use that workload estimate to change the characteristics of, of the sortie to improve educational outcomes. Another example of a closed-loop performance improvement system is uh, one that members of our team was, were involved in building in the past where we monitored a particular signal that you can detect in the brain that's linked with the detection of an interesting object in a photograph. So the problem here is that folks like the intelligence analysts whom we mentioned earlier, one of you know, many kinds of missions that we're, we're building our, our performance uh, solutions for, they have the mission of looking at hundreds of thousands of photographs, really uh, uh, multiple gigabytes easily of data that rains down from the heavens each day that's collected uh, by our, our airplanes and other platforms. And so they've got to look at those to figure out, say, if there was a, a terrorist training camp in a, in a particular photograph. And so you can use that same EEG sensor I mentioned earlier to detect when the occipital lobe in your brain, that part of your brain that does visual processing, sees in a photograph an object of interest. And the interesting thing about that signal was it presents itself reliably about 300 milliseconds after I show you the photograph. So that often is even before you become consciously aware that you've seen the object in the photograph. So you can probably see where I'm going here. If I have a thousand square miles of territory and I need to look at it, I can line up the photographs, those chits, if you will, from that thousand square miles and show it to an intelligence analyst using what's called rapid serial visual presentation or RSVP. I can RSVP those photographs to them quickly, monitor that P300 signal as it's called, and then take those photographs that cause that P300 signal and set them aside so that the analyst can spend their quality time, their, most of their heartbeats with those photographs that have the highest likelihood of having that enemy missile system or terrorist training camp in it. And so that, that prototype system has been used uh, to show that you can uh, decrease the amount of time it takes to analyze a given uh, deck of photographs almost uh, tenfold, depending on the context. Whoa! <laughs> so you're essentially taking the human brain and inserting it into an, <laughs> a technology strain to use its processing power because it's your best option right now. And then giving it back to the human to actually it's like know a what they're doing. It's like a GPU, <laughs> but it would be human processing unit? <laughs> HPU? That's amazing. Yeah. So even before, that's a great they, phrase. even before they could possibly <laughs> verbally confirm that, oh, that's interesting. The next photo has come and gone, probably. And you've simply noted somewhere that, hey, you know, to review in more detail later. That's right. Yeah, you can rotate those photos through in about 350 millisecond intervals. Wow. So it's going to take you a couple of seconds to even say, hey, that looks like an interesting photograph. So 
you know, you're getting time savings already by just leveraging that unconscious signal and uh, having your com- your computer and rack and stack the photos according to it. And so these people are in a vat, right? They're in waters or submerged, right? Because I've seen movies. No, <laughs> no just kidding. That's that's incredible. And you mentioned before um, autonomous teammates, and you also talked about human teammates. Is uh, because IoT is is probably allowing you to send a ton of interesting data back to the ground. Uh, is it possible that that uh, the pilot could have effectively a co-pilot on the ground in the same way that a drone pilot might be also on the ground? Uh, yes, yeah, so this that's a that's a really interesting uh, way of thinking about decisionating, if you will. So it'd be more online uh, decisionating. The but the teams that we talk about are not just single human, single sister, single machine. We are also looking at. Uh, m- many humans, many machines that we can configure in multiple ways to bring maximum goodness to you know whatever mission is is at hand. So it could be a combination of a human pilot with reachback capability to an analyst who's saying you might want to go over to this area because there's something interesting for you to look at. So certainly our teams include not just you know one human, one machine, but instead multiple humans, multiple machines configured in optimal ways to meet the mission need. As this program evolves and you continue to uh, merge the human and the technology into a a more seamless machine, have you changed your criteria for deciding who is eligible to be a pilot? Um, is, Is there anything new that you're looking for that you weren't before? Is there something that now disqualifies people that used to maybe qualify as as prime pilots? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and the, the the standards for uh, pilot training selection are, are are really in many respects outside of our bailiwick. So those are established uh, according to kind of longstanding bodies of of uh, medical and performance related evidence about what the minimal requirements are to allow someone to become pilot qualified or PQ uh, as it's called. So um, our, our our technologies are really orthogonal uh, to those decisions about about who is PQ and who isn't. Um, instead, we think of them as technologies that allow us to better tailor during pilot training, so during that training and education process, the types of sorties and missions you fly so that you take those pilots who are pilot qualified and make them superior pilots as, as quickly and as efficiently as you can. And then there really isn't any reason why, as this technology develops, you couldn't extend that same paradigm into the operational side of the house so that in that distributed fashion that Dr. Russell talked about earlier, we can integrate our technologies with the decisions that our pilots are making in real time so that as they start to act more like airborne battle command and control uh, centers, uh, which is you know something that humans are very good at doing, thinking strategically, thinking creatively about an air battle, say, so they can they can focus on those things and leave a lot of the lower level mechanics uh, and those um, quick reactions that are needed in some instances to the persistent stare and rapid reaction capabilities of an autonomous teammate. So in the future, you could think of uh, a flying force as really being composed of a combination of human and machine teammates who are working together effectively and synergistically and doing what each does best so that we can uh, do something like overcome an adversary in the air very quickly uh, or use our air power 
to do things like deter an adversary from wanting to go to a war in the air to begin with. As the training continues, do you start assessing and and almost um, optimizing the humans in the sense that you have certain people anywhere that are definitely better at certain scenarios than others? And so you might start over, you know, qualifying them further for a certain type of mission or a certain type of task versus just kind of universally training them for anything. Well, I think what you've hit on is essentially, you know, for, for a commander to decide ultimately on what resources are available and what the mission needs are. But uh, along the same lines, I'll add that one of the wonderful things about the Internet of Things and what it helps out is that it provides, I mentioned earlier, persistence. It, it helps um, us provide a more persistent picture of the warfighter, whether it's a pilot or an analyst, of their, of their whole health spectrum, of their whole wellness and their whole optimization performance profile. And that includes over months and days. Um, currently, we don't really measure that other than just asking people how they are. What that allows us to do is actually sustain, if we have a better sense of how that person is faring over time, if they're suffering from chronic stress and they need to do something about it, we can actually help sustain their performance, give them more of the resources they need to be successful. Um, we don't want to lose these highly trained, very valuable people. We, we don't want them to burn out. Um, we don't want them to leave. We'd like them to stay in and, and bring their skills to bear. But it also gives us the ability to help them, um, our obligation to our veterans as well in the long run. We have a better picture of their whole sense of wellness. Um, so it, it's a, a, a good side effect of all of these sensors is that it not only enables us to have more effective mission and mission outcomes, it also helps us... Uh, serve the warfighter better when we're thanking them for serving our country. That's really fantastic. I, I love that long-term impact. Do you guys have like a long-term dream accomplishment, some big end goal that you're uh, heading towards? I see our team as building technologies that help uh, humans and our machine teammates work together smoothly and frictionlessly as team members. So for any particular problem that uh, the warfighter has, maybe it's a problem of where do I put my uh, precious aid resources when I'm dealing with a humanitarian assistance and disaster response scenario, or maybe it's a force allocation uh, decision, where should I put my air wing tomorrow, or maybe it's, it's a tactical level encounter, uh, should I break right or break left? We see our uh, research area inside of Lockheed Martin Advanced Technology Laboratories as providing the, the, the glue that's going to help humans and autonomous machine mates become uh, true teammates to each other so that uh, together the human is empowered to prosecute a war effectively or ideally to be so good at fighting wars uh, that we prevail in peacetime by deterring our adversaries and so that we can use the military as a tool uh, to help us across the board deliver humanitarian assistance better, secure and stabilize governments in uh, transition for democratization, and, and otherwise secure the peace. So that's really the long-term vision for our team, to be able to pr provide the Department of Defense with supporting technologies that allow humans and autonomous teammates to team together smoothly, frictionlessly, and synergistically in any environment. If I were to add anything, it would be what I've just iterated about better long-term sustainment of the service member over a life cycle. It's, I think that it's an ambitious, but it's not with, outside of our reach, and all of these tools put together should definitely give us the ability to do that. 
Dr. Russell, Dr. K. Spear, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you, Charles and Andrea. Yeah, you guys are welcome anytime in the lab. Come on over. Woohoo! All right, take care, guys. <laughs> Bye, guys. Thank you for joining us. You've been listening to Far Stuff, the Internet of Things podcast. You can find us on the internet at farstuff.com and at farstuff on Twitter. Get in touch with us using the contact form at farstuff.com or email us at podcast at farstuff.com. And this brings us to the end of our thing. Thanks for listening. Thanks, everyone. 